Y'all, Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, <laughs> why don't you give them a shot? You can find a therapist that you can connect with. Their resource is thousands of therapists, well-trained and experienced. You can keep looking until you find someone that you click with. They have customized online therapy. They do offer videos, but they also offer phone and live chat sessions. So you don't even have to be seen. You can only be heard. What are you waiting for? Go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P.com slash stages. And for our cast members, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash stages. Go, go, go. Go find your healing. Go find your happy. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast. Where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. And I wanted to tell you all that as I was rushing home, guess who I passed? James Lapine and I was that's oh, like, oh what I'm about to do. <laughs> you were the only two directors thus far that we have I, interviewed. I think that's great. I love that like you're I love who you're sampling. I love that it's yeah. Thanks. Have you had yeah. a chance to listen to a few of them? I listened to James this a little bit of James this morning. I started listening to the Gorilla Vet. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, I that's where the juice is. Yeah, totally. someone extraordinarily special. Um, her name is Annie Kaufman, and I could make a whole list of shows and credits, but I think what struck me the most when I was doing some homework on Annie is that she is associated with some of the most impressive and respected theatrical institutions, and not just like associated with, but almost part of the family. You will either see founding member or board or artistic director. There is an intentionality, I think, to Annie's career. You read things like Steppenwolf Theater, New York Theater Workshop, Playwrights Horizon, Lucille Ortel, Lincoln Center, The Atlantic Theater Company, South Coast Rep, Goodman Theater, New York City Center, Stanford University. You see things like new plays and the civilians, documentary theater. These are things that as a young person who wants to be in, really in the meat and the potatoes of being a New York City artist, this is what you strive to see on your resume. And it's very rare that you actually see this. So I'm so excited to speak to her because I want to know about the intentionality, about how she created this sort of legacy and this sort of resume. Please welcome to Stages Podcast, Annie Kaufman. Annie Kaufman to stage, please. Ms. Kaufman to the stage. Hi, Annie. Hello, hello. Holy smokes. So <laughs> I mean it when I say that I don't believe these sort of 
institutions just fall into people's laps, that you have to have a desire and intention to go to New York and find a destiny, create or curate a destiny. Is that true for me to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, 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 the way that you just put together those, um, the things on my CV and the way that you contextualized it feels much more intentional, I think, than, than what I sort of came to New York doing. And I often say that the career of a director, the career of a theater artist are disparate points on a graph. And um, in order to make meaning of those, you sort of have to connect dots and do a little bit of math um, because there isn't, there isn't a ladder that one can climb in this industry, at least yeah. not these days. There seemed to be a ladder way back when the ladder was from actor to stage manager to director, but that's not, that's not really how it is these days. So did you have a network of other creatives that you knew well when you came? I went to Stanford and then I, um, because everyone in the theater department, I was a double major. I was theater and Slavic language and literature because my parents would not let me do just theater. <laughs> they called that a trades, not a, not a profession. Ed- Yes. Yeah. But wait, Slavic literature was going to get you a trade? <laughs> well, I think that you're just more interested in the academic, you know, the, the sort of thing that sounded, yeah. I mean, what I, that sounded impressive. But it I does, it does sound impressive. It sounds very impressive. And, I, and I, I'm glad that it does, because if you got into the nitty gritty of it, you would find, you would, you would be able to pull a thread and undo it all. But I will say that what I told my dad at the time, and I was pretty proud of myself, actually, and I do believe this. I do think in a liberal arts undergrad program that we're all looking at history and a major is a lens through which you're looking at history. So, mm. and especially like Stanford, I mean, which is not, I mean, it's not super practical. It's not super practical theater. I mean, maybe it's a little bit more now, but it wasn't when I went there. I mean, there were huge academics there, you know, Carl Weber and Alice Rayner and all of these people who had been involved in the academic side of theater as well as the practical side. So, I mean, it was very true for me because I remember taking a a costume class by a, a pretty famous scholar of, and I'm not going to remember his last name, it's Doug something, but if you took, if you studied theater at all and under, you know, like this many years ago, you used his textbook. And essentially what I learned was fashion emulated the philosophy of the time. Hmm. So, you know, the idea of the round sleeves was at a time when, you know, when the circle was um, a holy uh, shape. And, And I learned so much about you know, women's rights and men's rights through the way that um, women were corseted and then mm-hmm. let free. And so anyway, that was my my pitch to my dad, which fell like a lead balloon. Um, and I did. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think it is true. And that's why I really encourage young people not to go into conservatory, learn something else, you know. The more you learn about other things, the better actor you can be, you know, or the better director you can be or the better designer you can be. You at one point started out as an actress, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because um, yes, I did. I mean, my my goal was to be a musical theater star. I mean, I came to 
New York for the first time. I'm from Phoenix. And my dad, each one of us, when we turned 13, when we graduated from eighth grade, my dad would take each one of us, and there's six of us, to New York City and D.C. And this was our introduction to the East Coast. And we would see a ton of theater. In order to go, we had to memorize the preamble to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, part of the Declaration of Independence. And we also had to um, do squats because um, (laughs) we were going to walk up the Statue of Liberty. So every night I'd go up to my mom and dad's bedroom and we, my dad and I would do squats. And then I would have to, you know, try to recite these things so that we were a lot, you know, so that was our little test to go. You know, we were here probably for four days and we probably saw six shows. Do you remember what they were? I do remember. Okay. Ready for this? They were Avida, which just blew my mind and actually had a huge impression on work that I did in the future. I saw dancing. Aha, uh-huh. sure. The poster with all the legs coming yeah, out. Yeah, all right? the yep. legs. Yep. That's right. Yep. I saw chorus line. I saw mousetrap or death trap. What what was um and I think Christopher Reeve was in it. It's death trap. <laughs> yeah, death trap. Christopher Reeve death trap. Yeah. Yeah. And I just I remember just seeing these shows and going home, going back to our hotel and just crying myself to sleep because I was mm. so I wanted it so badly. Mm. Um, and I really wanted to be a musical theater star, but I, you know I couldn't sing or dance or act. And I was <laughs> cast, I was cast a lot in undergrad as as a man because they were it was there was a dearth of men. You know it wasn't because I was like so amazing that I could you know I had these shape shifting abilities. I think it was just to fill in for the, you know, for the lack of um, balls. That's so interesting to me because when I was describing you to Mary Lee, I said, you know, she's not the bells and whistles, commercial musical theater. Her approach is like tense and emotional and in quotes, edgy and complicated. And uh, so that's so interesting to me that the genesis of it all was, Mm -hmm. you know, well, I mean, Avita had that dark for the time, certainly musical theater. That was dark. That, yeah, very dark. And I think you're totally right, Stephanie. I try to reconcile this. I, I, I try to reconcile these p- parts of me. You know what I mean? Um, not that they can't all live in me, but I do, I do think a lot about what excited me about being in the theater. And I think a lot of it had to do with my exhibitionism and I wanted people to see me on stage. I mean, I think, and I'm, I'm weirdly like revisiting that now and seeing what were my, what are my real dreams in the theater? You know, wow. where am I most comfortable? And Did the pandemic spark that sort of re-questioning? Oh, for sure. If you have any sense of self, you're, you, you're questioning it in a, you know, you're questioning it often. Yeah. The pandemic had me thinking a lot about myself as a leader. The first part of the pandemic, first, the, the sort of range of emotions was first relief because I was heading into probably a nervous breakdown <laughs> with everything that was going on. I mean, in my life and trying to juggle all the things, you know, because I mean, let's be honest, we have to do, I mean, I have to do a lot of things as a director, as a freelance director in order to make a living. I just right. want to be very clear about that, right. especially if I'm not a Broadway director. That's right. Yeah. I always so. say I have to stir at least like 12 pots and hope that one or two actually cooks up the way I was hoping it would cook up. And most of them require travel because you can't just be doing it in New York. You have to be everywhere to do it. And that's true. That's true. And, you know, a lot of regional theaters pay better than New York theaters off Broadway. That's true. 
That's yeah. true. So that's <laughs> and I think so it was a little bit of practicality and a little bit of my ego, my ego being stroked by certain artists or certain places asking me to do shows and my feeling like I couldn't say no. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a balance in there somewhere. Um, so the first thought was just relief. A forced vacation. A forced vacation. Without judgment right. or expectation. Right. Nobody's expecting anything from you or of you. And that's yeah. freeing. Well, that oh. is what's interesting because I think that everyone was sort of scurrying to help, you know, like scurrying to help artists, scurrying to help get money and, you know, and, and also do online content oh, yeah. and all of this stuff, right? I'm a leader in, you know, different institutions. And so I would have thought that I could have stepped in and lent a hand and guided. And to my great disappointment, I didn't. And that was very painful for me. And I couldn't, I didn't, I wouldn't say it was I paralyzed. Maybe I was paralyzed. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I can't quite, you know, describe it, but I, I was not able to do that. I mean, I did, I sort of would start things and then just, I just couldn't follow through with that. Are you an empath in any way? Were you, did you feel like you were taking on all the worries and weights and all the feelings of the world? I wish that I could say that, Stephanie. I'm not really sure why I don't do that. I mean, I, I don't do that, thankfully, in a way, you know, because I, I feel like I, could, I wouldn't be able to move. I think right. I'm a very sensitive person, but I'm sensitive in reading, not necessarily feeling And so I I think I was exhausted. I think I just, you know, when you go on vacation after being really, really busy and you can't move for three days and then you start your vacation. I felt like I had six months of that then. I had a really hard time. And then George Floyd happened and there was a scurrying by a good many institutions, as you all, as we know, Mm -hmm. um, to evaluate practices, et cetera. And so I was sitting in on a lot of anti-racist and and anti-bias training and people started sort of presenting these models that were models of, uh, of organizing that were not hierarchical. Even in our, in our rehearsal room, there's the director and then there's the stage manager and then there's the PA and that, you know, it's very like this. yeah? Yeah. And I started being introduced to non-hierarchical systems that um, placed visionary on the same wavelength Mm -hmm. as messenger. More collaborative. You're not um, listing it by job. You're organizing it by almost a creativity aspect. And one's not more important than the other. They're collaborative. Is that one that is not more important than the other. So visionaries, but if we have all visionaries, no one's going to be there to execute. That's right. Right. That's right. And and that was very moving to me. Um, I find that very moving and helpful in building my way back into the world. I was going to say back into theater, but I, I think back into the world. I'm much more interested now in looking at everything as my life, not just my career. Do you equate stillness with selfishness? Yeah, I think I was very critical of myself because mm. I'm a problem solver. I, um, and I think that the time over the course of the 
pandemic, I think I'm starting to really in my fifties now understand who I really am Mm -hmm. and also understand what I really want, which I think is the most difficult thing for me. It's been the most difficult thing to answer. It's a really difficult thing. And I think a lot of women, especially have a very hard time answering that question. When you say, what do you really want? You seem to me, I don't, you know, I've never worked with you, but you seem to me to be very responsible for others, right? Which is why you love to be a director. You're the responsible one in the room. I I heard you say somewhere that you, whenever someone gives you a script, you read it all the way through because you feel responsible to read it all the way through. Even if you know you don't like it, even if you know in the first 20 pages, this is not for me, you read it all the way through because you feel somewhat responsible for others. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when we focus a lot on others needs and doing for others when, when the time stops and we have to go inward and really focus inward and give ourselves that permission. It's really hard to do because in general, yeah. women aren't not given that. It's not pretty in there, you know, not always pretty in there. It's yeah. not always pretty in there. And then it's interesting because I can answer Stephanie, what do you want? But when I pose the question as what is the life that you want? Yeah, exactly. That changes completely. And Mm -hmm. I don't have a clear answer for that. I know how I want to feel. I know how I want to walk through the world. I I know how I want um, to be viewed by myself and by others, but I don't know what life I want to do that in, what atmosphere, what that looks like. I really don't know what that looks like. And that's what the pandemic has brought to the forefront for me, because in motion, you think you're you're creating that life, but I must say that these last 18 years, I've been so privileged that it has one opportunity has led to the next, has led to the next. And I was saying in an earlier interview that I felt like I was controlling that. I was making that happen. Yeah. When those opportunities disappeared, I thought, oh my God, I am really coming from a place of sort of bare bones and I'm not inspired and trying to move my way from the bottom up is very difficult for me. And I thought that's what I've been doing for the last 18 years. And I hadn't, I've been working from the top down. All of this inspiration and art has been salt and peppering every aspect of my life that I just always felt creative and inspired. And, and it was all like, that was a lie. I think that that's so, that is so well said. And I, I mean, I think that's what I'm talking about too, with what I want in terms of my life. But I do think discovering that being in motion is a lie is yeah. really, it's, it's really deep. It's it informs very, very who we are a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But, but Stephanie, I wouldn't say that it's a lie. It was just the process of creativity that you were accustomed to. That's all. That's okay, what had come I your way. Walk- I was walking around as a little chatty billboard saying, oh, yes, and I make sure that I'm constantly surrounded by music and art and dancing and, and poetry. That's not and untrue. Pa, 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 pa. Well, no, that's not untrue, but it was fabricated by so many other outside sources mm-hmm. when I was really taking ownership and claim that mm-hmm. I was the one making it happen. I was the cog in the wheel making all that. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. I was part of the equation and the fabric of it all. But uh, to use the analogy, you pull that one thread Mm. with the Slavic languages, you pull that one thread of taking those opportunities Mm. away from me. And it's up to me now to make the inspiration, make the magic, make the happy, make the music. (gasps) 
I went, my well went dry for quite a long time. And I thought that's a big thing to look at and see the, the how, when, and the whys of it all, Mm. I think. Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think it's also important to, I mean, the pandemic also, because I wasn't working, I was actually, I think I might, might've said this to you, Stephanie, but I could actually spend time with my family in a way that I never have. And I, um, uh, my sisters, my brother, my father, um, and they, you know, all of them at certain points, um, they're all very capable people and amazing at everything they do. Um, but they were having a hard time and they have kids. Um, and I don't, and I ha- I was able to kind of move around and I will tell you that, and for friends too, who were having a hard time, I was able to go to them and be helpful in that way. And I can't tell you how, I mean, that seems so simple, but I, I have never been able to do that. Um, and that that's, it was really, really important. It was really, really important to also spend time in their homes and not feel intimidated by the fact that they had families. And I, I'm the only one out of six kids who doesn't have kids and the only one out of six kids who was divorced, you know? So I spent a lot of time worrying about how I was different. Mm-hmm. And, and I, all of those were just set us, all of that was set aside and no one in my family made me feel like that. That's just, again, me, I'm curious to investigate what who am I, what's my personality most aligned with in terms of the job, you know what I mean? Um, of, of a weaver or a communicator or a, right. or, you know right. what I mean? A nurturer or yeah. A, yeah. I'm interested in that because I think I will be, if I can let go of being the kind of leader that I thought I was, mm-hmm. I just mean in my head, it's not going to change how I am in the room, but who I am in my head, I feel like I'm going to be able to fill a potential much, you know what I mean? To really succeed at something that I'm, that I'm actually naturally um, inclined to do. It's interesting because in yoga, they say the best way to find yourself is to ask, how may I be of service? How may I serve? And that's how you find your truest self. So it's interesting that that's been your experience throughout the pandemic. So I'm wondering, did your family raise you to be of service? Was it the kind of family that was of service to others? That's a, that's an interesting question. Yes. And no, I would say that there were examples of my parents being of service, but it wasn't something that was it wasn't a thing that like was a family tradition or like you don't yeah, serve meals yeah. at Thanksgiving and right. But all of six kids are, we all are um, service people. So it must have come through in some way. Mm-hmm. What was the very first play you ever directed? Oh gosh. You know, um, this was at college and it was um, two plays that were Russian symbolist plays. Can you imagine? Oh my God, what a snooze fest. <laughs> um, and they were short plays and they all had to do with, uh, and, and one was by Alexander Blok, who is a symbolist poet actually. And the other one was Erdman, I think. Mikhail Erdman, I'm pretty sure. And they were both involved with, um, like they, they had, um, you know, Columbine and um, 
Harlequin, and they all were sort of, you know, using those characters as comments of, about the state of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was really, they were really boring. I just, I will say that. Um, yeah, it wasn't my greatest triumph. <laughs> Have you ever directed something where you wish you could go back and say, oh, damn it, I just want one more shot at that one and do it again? Or have you usually been kind of happy with the way things turned out and it was the vision that you had in mind? I kind of feel like that, although I've, I've definitely had a chance. One of the best experiences that a director gets is if, if a show goes someplace else and you have to do it again and you get to do it with the same company. Yeah. Because that's, yeah, because then you actually can get somewhere. You can actually get somewhere. Do you do a lot of pre-production before walking into the room? You know, I don't anymore. I mean, okay. Well, I do in, in terms of like, I, my pre-production work is all design because designers are brilliant dramaturgs because they're both practical um, because they literally have to build it and they're practical and metaphorical because they have to straddle that in a, in a really, really real way. I will break down the, the script, but I'll break it down literally you know, one of the things I used to teach my students was, was to read a script without any prejudices, which is really difficult to do. So hard for me. I want to so fix hard. every character. I yeah, want to put I my know. tilt on it every single right. time. And I don't and you and extrapolate what the characters are thinking or whatever like that, right? So the first thing I try to do is break it down and actually list what happens, what actually happens, not what I think happens. Mm. or not interpreting, he took her hand, oh, they're in love. No, he just took her hand. Mm-hmm. That could mean a bunch of different things because of the simpler you are, the more choices you have. Mm-hmm. You're not trapped, which brings me to why I don't make a lot of decisions before rehearsal because I learned through a very, very painful process what my job is and what a playwright's job is in the room with a new play. And that is this, that you are not making the play outside of the rehearsal room. You're making the play inside the rehearsal room with these people in this moment, with this temperature in the room, with these snacks. So (laughs) it's that fragile. And also, it's not meant to be read and figured out. It's meant to be lived and explored and explored in 3D. So what happened, so what I learned was if I planned something beforehand, if I knew the answer or it didn't even have to know the answer, just simple things like blocking beforehand, right? Then what's happening is I'm cutting myself off. As you can see, I, I need choices. Cutting myself off for the dynamic in the room. So I, I, think the, I think I spent time, I lost time. That goes back to what you were saying about joining these meetings on social justice and racial justice, and that it's more like the the round of the knights. No, what's it called? The knights of the round. Knights of the, round the knights of the round table, yeah. as opposed to the hierarchy of you. This is your label. Then you're second in charge, and then you're third in charge. So that's the way you like to create. And I think I haven't been in the room with you that much, right? quantity, but the quality has been such that it feels like you and I have worked together quite a lot. You have a firm hand, you have an understanding of the room, and you certainly have the seat where everybody knows 
she's making the final decision. We're having this conversation. And if I come to her with ideas that are thought out, ideas that are fortified and they have substance because of the material and the way I see the character, that there will be a really great back and forth, but still knowing that the final decision as the director will be yours. But it's a, it really is this sort of movement. And I thought for sure this conversation was going to go a little different in the sense that I thought for sure there was quite a bit of um, <laughs> pre-production because of maybe just your understanding of the material and understanding of the people, of the tools in the room that you're working with and alongside. So it's interesting for me to hear you say it this way. Yeah, that's the joy. That's like the joy. You know, if I could, I know this is Every, like a lot of directors say this, but I really, if I could just keep having conversations about like which way things could go, I would love that in perpetuity, like ad nauseum. Never ending yeah. rehearsal process is your dream. Yeah, and just like conversations too, because, yeah. you know, ab- about it. Um, I, I just really, I really love that. And, and I will say this also, growing as a director for me has been uh, whittling away of this, and mm-hmm. relying on instinct. Mm-hmm. Like, and I also, like, I feel like what I also feel uh, about you, I mean, obviously the thought through thing is fantastic. And I, and I obviously, I mean, we, we have to get to that at some point, but I, part of the, part of the reason I gather the kind of people I do in a room is because I trust their instincts too. And like lots of times I'll have an instinct and an actor or some, you know, a designer or someone will say, why that? And I'll be like, okay, let me get back to you on that. <laughs> I backwards to it. Mm-hmm. But right now I can't, I don't, I don't want to explain it. I just feel it. Yep. And it feels right to me. Yeah. So let's it go that right way. To me. Yeah. 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 And I think that like that, and I feel like that is gold. It's gold. And I'm trying you know, to do that with life. Do you Not know that- why that's gold? Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I think when we're going on the instincts and the conversations are there and that this feels right to me, but let me, let me listen to you as opposed to this is pre-produced. It is a control that then if someone disagrees with you, you have to come to terms with, there's a whole inner discussion that has to happen. Then there's the whole letting go. And it's like so messy when it's like that. So when you're controlling something, you're controlling it because you're seeing any change to what you have envisioned as an attack on your personal ego or your personal vision. But when you, when you follow your gut and you know, you can trust somebody else, it's you're coming from a different place. There's a flow and the control isn't so tight. You allow to kind of go with the flow, which, which is what where creativity begins. If we're going in the chakras, that's chakra two, where we control everything. But chakra three is our guts and our instincts and knowing what we should fear, what we shouldn't fear and having the faith in the self to follow it. And what we're taught often is don't listen to this, listen to the head, go with your head because that's never failed us before. And it takes a lot more courage to go with what you're feeling in your gut. But also I wanted to ask you how, so when, when you're in a collaborative process and you, and you seem like you love the collaboration process, which is so awesome, I think, when do you know when to say, okay, now I'm making a decision. Now I'm going to stop because the collaboration process, like you were saying, can go on and on. And the conversations can keep going. When do you know when to land? 
Well, first I'm going to say this. I um, am a collaborator I, um, because I depended on it. Now I love it in a different way than I did when I was younger. But I it started because I, I wish I could be a writer and be alone in a room and not depend on anyone. But I I need that. I need I need other you know I need other people to help me build something. And now I've grown to love it. I want to say not just in my career and what I do, but I'm really trying to bring that to bear on um, other other parts of my life. Okay. So then you asked, I don't know if I know when it's the final thing. I will mm-hmm. say this. I think that when we get into previews, that's when the work begins laying. I don't think that my companies always feel like, okay, great. Now we can move to the theater. Now we're like, this is what we're putting on because we're in a the real space. Again, like I want to just reiterate that like theater happens in a space. It's like physics are involved. You know what I mean? Um, as opposed to film or television where you could do anything, you know, the physics are actually involved. So once you get in that space and it's different, and once you've got the audience, and I'm sure we we all know this, but I really think that like that's when the that's when it begins. And you know, depending on the preview period, I'm freaking using that preview period. And now our five questions. If you could go back and talk to your little teenage self, what advice would you give her? What would you tell her? I would tell her to keep the fire of your temper tantrums, keep the fire of them Mm -hmm. um, without executing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could use that. I could use that on myself and my six-year-old for yeah. Yeah. I just feel like I worked so hard on my anger issues that I worked them all. I worked them all totally away. And I feel like there's something, you know, like I, what fires me up to go back to the chakra thing. Yeah. The, the element of three, which is the gut, which is the thing that you're trying to listen to now is fire. That's the element. Fire is three. So there you go. You got something going on there in chakra three lady. Yeah, chakra thief. And you know what else is kind of crazy about that? And I'm just going to say this is that I've had a lot of surgeries on my gut. Oh, oh interesting. Wow. And well, okay, that's that, okay. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, let's keep going. What's number two? <laughs> Do you have a good luck charm or a ritual before starting a new project or before embarking on something big? I don't. Hmm. I like that answer. That's, yeah, that's the answer. That's You're the, the answer. first one to just say, I don't, period. I'm sure. Yeah. Done. Okay. Okay. So do you have a nickname when you were a kid? Who gave it to you and why? Oh God. Um, well, I was called Little Orphan Annie by the bus driver <laughs> um, <laughs> home from grade school. And that always made me really sad that I was Little Orphan no. Annie. Um, yes. And then my sister called me Annie Fanny or called me just Fanny. Cause I used to streak around the house. <laughs> I got Steph Fanny the same. Yeah. I was oh. like, uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so clever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you could have any, um, skill, it could be otherworldly, supernatural. What would it be? A skill that you're like highly proficient at? Dance. Well, I'm, you know, I'm a sucker for ballet. I have to say, 
I, I would like to have that freedom with my body mm-hmm. that full on, like I can like just do anything. Okay. If you were a nail polish color, what mm-hmm. color would you be? And what would the cheeky little name be? That is a good one. You know, I feel like this, this is weirdly related to the good luck charm, I think, because I feel like I am always trying to change it up, you know, whatever's in the room, right? Oh gosh. (laughs) I think I would, I I think I would like to do silver, like really shiny silver with like a little crackle, you know, like remember when you like paint something with a little crackle in it, Uh a decoupage type thing, like a decoupage type thing. And I think I would call it silver squeak. Ah, Silver squeak. (laughs) Yeah. Like street. No, like there's like a little squeak of another thing coming out. Yeah. I like it. No, she's done A little crackle of another color coming through. Yeah, oh, like, like, like when that crackle paint was in about like That's 15 right. years yeah, ago. Yeah, 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 I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I like you, Annie Fanny, so very, very much. And please call me Annie Fanny. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, it's, it's true. I did streak. Um, thank you so much for this, you guys. I feel like I want to have you. many more conversations. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. I appreciate it. It was great to meet you. Very great to meet you, too. And I hope that there's many more meetings. Bye. Bye. Love you. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Our theme song says love where you are now, but sometimes we all need a little help. I've learned from therapy and in my yoga practice that growth comes from challenges. A good therapist can help you reframe the way you look at a challenge and your life. And BetterHelp can provide you with a therapist that give you some tools to navigate. They offer customized online therapy, either on video or phone chat sessions. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can reach a therapist in under 48 hours. And right now, Stages cast members get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp, so don't wait. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you support Stages Podcast. So log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash Stages, and love where you are now. Hi, everybody. So coming up on our Thanksgiving episode, Mary Lee and I will be answering all of your questions. Little by little, some questions have been coming in and we're so grateful for those. But now's the time. If you want to ask us everything and anything, please send them our way. And um, that's what our Thanksgiving episode is going to be. We're looking forward to answering all those pressing, emotional, messy questions. You can email us a question at our website, stagespodcast.net, or you can leave us a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We also may answer our five questions that we've been asking everybody else all year. We're really looking forward to hearing what you guys want to know. And now, back to what struck a chord with us. Oh, she was fun. Very open, I thought. Yeah. I admire her always reassessing and sitting in her truth. You could actually hear her kind of peeling the onion during mm. our discussion. You know, she was really figuring it out and working it out in real time during the conversation. When I asked her if she thought stillness was selfish because she said she desperately wanted to be of service, but she found herself unable to do that. That resonated with me. That's actually a question I could ask myself. I thought that was really, really powerful when you you, asked that question. Do you feel the same way? Like if you're going to go take a nap, there's a little bit of guilt to it. Or if you're like... 
I just want to sit here for 20 minutes and do nothing. I don't want to open an email. I don't want to think about prepping dinner for the family. I don't want to think of anything. I can't do it. My husband naps. He's like, come on. Even if I'm exhausted, I will just lie there and make lists in my head of all the stuff I should be doing. (laughs) It's because you feel very hard. I don't know. Conscious choice. Like I cannot race and because you're so good at meditation, which also is sitting in the, I'm not the good space at meditation. of, oh, you're not. <laughs> I struggle with meditation. I wish I was better. I actually haven't done any yoga, like through probably the whole pandemic, everything has stopped that I need to get moving more. It's oh, funny I because I don't know. Cause then sometimes I will just sit around and do nothing for like a chunk of time, but I think I do feel very guilty when I do it. So I have to distract myself with like my phone or something, but yep. to actually sit quietly is a very difficult thing to do. It, it kind of goes also to what she was saying about her sense of like, you know, we were talking about chakra three and stuff and all of that, that sense right. of like personal power and all of that, that all is in the same kind of space energy wise. And there's this wonderful quote by Einstein that I use in my yoga classes all the time. And he says, the intuitive mind, which is your chakra three, right? Your gut, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And the rational mind is a faithful servant. And we have created a society that honors the servant and forgets the gift. Whoa. And that's all about dropping into yourself and quieting your head allowing that space to just be quiet and listening to what's really going on inside, which it, it's so hard for everybody. Yeah. But I think that's why your question was so powerful. It's, a, it's an important question. Also, the word that's kind of sticking out there is servant. And then I go back to the conversation where she was using the word hierarchy, right? So mm. in her workspace where there's the director and then the stage manager, and then however you want to list it in terms of authority and that she was really starting to thrive in this space of dialogue and creation in sort of that everybody's on an even plane and everybody's voice has the same amount of, of weight. And then we spoke of the Knights of the round table. And one thing I wanted to mention in the middle of the chat was that it's interesting, this, this trusting of each other, this saying that where you sit in the table is the same place as I because of this circle, which goes back to the costumes that she was talking about, how the circular sleeve. Oh, yeah, the circular sleeve. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Um, but the knights, it's it's said that the knights of the round table, when they would all lift their their glasses and clink them together, it was a form of trusting one another because if someone there was plotting against them and not part of the the bond or the kinship that when they would clink the glass, if somebody had poison in their glass, it would hit all of them. And that's sort of, Mm. I trust you, right? Isn't that the coolest? I love that little tidbit. Even now as friends, if you go out to eat or drink and you're clinking your glasses of wine together. Now, of course we don't do it. So that'll be more slush, but (laughs) that is what it's symbolizing. It's like, we're here together. We're embarking on breaking bread together and we're trusting one another. And I just thought that's, that's really something that when the time comes for me to enter back into a rehearsal space or any sort of collaborative space to keep that in mind, that it is truly a round table instead of a sort of triangular hierarchy. I think that's a really healthy way to come back into the world. 
I really liked that. I liked her a lot. I like how introspective she was and very honest. Yeah. And you're right. She was peeling away the onion as we were speaking. And I love that kind of honesty. It makes I for do too. a really I nice conversation. Too. That's what makes such a great connection. Yeah. Oh, thank you all for joining us today. I think you, uh, we certainly did. We got to hear a wonderful conversation and embark on some really great new, well, unearthed ideas. All right. Have a great I'll, week, everybody. I'll see you next week, my friend. Bye. Bye-bye, ML. So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. A big thank you goes out to our assistant and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you to Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages Podcast logo. Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer. And Allison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week.